This is Just Winging It, take two. We're now recording and live on Facebook. There is a lot going on in this moment, and we have a special silent guest who's going to stay silent for another minute or so. Which is always terribly awkward. It is It is super weird. So he's just going to, you know, gonna, we're just going to sit there, super awkward, kind of just like <laughs> hanging out in his room. That was a laugh. That's a that's a deduction from your, your time today. And for those um, of us who are live or watching it on Facebook, they can actually see it, but that's okay. I hate this fucking um, <laughs> John, how you doing, man? This has been uh, a crazy, crazy, crazy time. It's been a couple of weeks since we did our last episode. So how, how how have you been? How how does everything in the world change so drastically between episodes? Like I can't I can't keep up with uh, emotions. <laughs> I can't keep up with life. I uh, there's a lot, man, and there's a lot to unpack, and I'm really excited for this episode. Um, I imagine for you, you know, the whole other layer to it is like it, you've just moved to a new place. Um, which is Connecticut, so that you know that sucks. <laughs> um, or so as I'm, Jamie said, uh, New Hampshire. It's, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like oh, yeah, so and I have to I it. have to also mention that you know I thought one of the fucking perks of this moment is that your kids don't get sick, right? Because we're all quarantining, mm-hmm. and right. yet I've got I've got now um, Grace, who's been sick for a few days with high fever yet again. How um, high is it this time? And by the way, I didn't even mention like six weeks ago she had strep during the earlier part of this, you know. So sh- sh- it's just. She's fine. I mean, I don't want to complain here. She doesn't have coronavirus that I know of, but um, she's got a throat and fever thing going on, and it's just you know, there's that. Uh, is she okay fine. though? She's she's hanging. Oh in yeah, there? she's fine. She I should yeah I should have started that way probably. She's fine. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't she's be laughing. Crazy. Yeah yeah yeah. She's um, uh yeah. You know. And I you know I've got it a little too. Um, but it, for some reason, like we're the weak links in the family. You know, whenever whenever uh, something enters the household, Grace gets like 105 fever, legit. Um, it she really does. Her- That's why I was asking before. I was like, how high is it? Because she, she gets like triple, like, I mean, she's like 112, 113. Yes. yes. Um, her body just full on, not actually that. It's a 105. Um, her body full on attacks, you know, right away. So, but she's okay. She's doing fine. She's just a little hot right now. Um, and I'm, um, I'm doing fine. I don't have a fever, so I'm fine. But we're the weak links in the family. So that's, it is what it is. Um, it is amazing, you know, you're mentioning how fast things change because at the, at, so, you know, I, I went on Facebook for the first time in two weeks, a couple of days ago, just to post, you know, a status about moving because, you know, we couldn't really tell people about it for so long. And because, you know, we kind of wanted to like mark the occasion. Um, and so I, you know, kind of wrote this like short but emotional post about it. And then within like 12 hours, I felt like a dumbass for posting that because like the world was collapsing and like it was like hours before George Floyd was murdered. And it was like, you know, it's and and now I look back on this post from like a week and a half ago and it feels like, again, it was a lifetime ago because things change so rapidly and it is such a moment of upheaval in so many ways in this society. And we're going to um, take advantage of our time here today with our silent-ish guest over there to sort of unpack some of these things. so I guess before we do, I'm going to go ahead and, uh, and introduce him, if that's cool. I this think is, that would uh, be good. Let's not prolong the awkwardness here. <laughs> yeah, he's just, what if the entire time he just mm-hmm. silently just sat there in his room and just sort of watched us, <laughs> just giving us the side eye? So this is Jamie Prater. Jamie is, is basically a brother to me. He's one of my absolute best friends in this world. Uh, we uh, co-host two other shows together, Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast, and Perfect Organism. Uh, he also the Alien Saga podcast. He also runs, uh, co-runs the Dark Crystal podcast called Trial by Stone, and he is an all-around amazing person with a terrific perspective on race and, re- and relations in America. And he's somebody who um, I go to when I'm having a hard time processing things. And I thought, you know, 
we, we in approaching this episode, because we knew we were going to have to address the incredible turmoil and, and change that's happening around the country right now. Um, and you and I, John, were both kind of thinking, like, I feel like I, you know, we don't really have, uh, like, the best perspective on this because of our backgrounds or, or because of our inarticulateness or whatever. So I figured, you know, we'll bring Jamie in. He's a ringer. Yeah. Yeah. Because we're just a bunch of dumbasses. Um, and Jamie can kind of help us to think through this a little bit, you know, what's happening right now and what it means for our children and what it means for, for the world. So anyway, without me blabbing anymore, Jamie, welcome finally to just winging it. Thank you for having me. I'm doing well. I remember I talked to you about an uncle's episode a while ago. Remember that? (laughs) <laughs> kind just, of yeah <laughs> maybe like, this is that episode it. you yeah, never mentioned know, it be. yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> so jamie give us a little bit of a, an insight into like your background who you are where you come from you, you have an amazing life story that you don't have to get all the way into right now but you can kind of you know where do you come from so i come from america no uh <laughs> yeah uh i mean that's a very difficult or it's a very layered question because i my father is African-American. My mother is white. They got married. My bro- my father was born and raised in Arkansas until he moved to Chicago until the, when he was like either 10 or 12 or one of those. Um, my mother was born and raised in, in Chicago, Indiana. She was raised in Gary, Indiana, which is now predominantly African-American. Um, they had a big uh, economic um, dive in the 60s and steel mill just collapsed and then the town collapsed and it never recovered um so i'm very midwestern in terms of my stock like that's where i'm from my father um is the oldest of nine children he actually technically is the oldest of 11 his mother had other children that passed away Uh, my father used to pick cotton on a sharecropper's farm until he was nine years old in arkansas a white man's farm he would jump on a horse and a buggy every morning and uh, go to this farm and pick cotton and until his mother decided that she wanted to move the children to Chicago. And then they grew up in these homes, which were projects called the Robert Taylor Homes, um, which is where a lot of low-income, poor, desolate, desperate African-American people lived. Either it was in projects like that or it was in the South Side, which is, if you've ever been to the South Side of Chicago, it's this gorgeous part of Chicago that's completely uninvested in by local governments. Um, it's, it's, it's completely redlined. Um, you have these old brownstones like you'd see in New York city, but no one invests. So it feels like you're, you're living in an, in an episode of children of men or something, but it's Mm -hmm. been like that for 50 years, um, or more. Um, so that's sort of, I was, I was then born, um, in 1976. Um, and then, I grew up in an intentional community until I was 23. So it was a commune essentially. Um, and sort of idyllic, but not, um, so yeah, it's hard to answer that question succinctly because it's a bunch of different things. Um, but that's sort of the, the gist of it. Uh, I, in Chicago, my parents raised me in the in uptown inner city, um, multicultural, very poor, um, uh, the church I grew up in was very um, socially aware, a lot of protests. They're also was, were steeped and are steeped in a lot of conservative Christian ideals. So there's a lot of anti-abortion protesting, uh, pro-life movements, anti-gay stuff. Um, but there's a lot of really positive things too in terms of 
the biggest shelter that fed the homeless in Chicago, um, mm. and then eventually sheltered homeless women and children in Chicago. So I really come from a long line or a, a rich history of activism and social justice. Um, some of that, again, is mixed in with things that weren't probably very positive. Um, but yeah, but it's also very much like, you know, you find the truth and you tell it. So that's sort of the long and the short of it for me. And I would say uh, of anybody I know, you are the most truth teller out there. You've um, really uh, advocated for a lot of people in your life. And, and I, and that's something I've always you know respected about you a lot. Um, I want to go back for a minute. Like, you know, so, so we've been sort of touching base over these last couple of weeks quite a bit. Um, but how, how are you doing at this moment in America, Jamie? Well, I'd say the past couple of days today being one of them, um, my anxiety is really high. Um, just reading the news. Like I've actually today I decided I'm not getting on social media unless I have to do podcast stuff. I can't, like I can't the, all of the conversations about race and cops and this and that. And it's so much, it's so much. And I turned it off. I turned off social media today and I've just been working on like actually work stuff for my job. And I'm looking out my window and it's a little bit of a gloomy day. And I'm like, Hey, I'm having a great day. (laughs) You know, um, but it's been tough. It's really been tough. I think, especially someone who represents both cultures. Um, and as I, when I was younger, my looks, my features were a little bit different. My hair was curly. I looked a little bit more, well, a lot more identifiably biracial or African-American as I've gotten older. I look less like that. So people are kind of like, what are you? You're not black. You're not. Are you Puerto Rican? Are you Arab? Are you Italian? As I get older. Um, So it's a difficult place for me to be, I think, because I'm so much of the black experience I feel. I mean, I was called nigger when I was seven. Um, um, That was my first awakening to the idea that I was different when I was seven years old um, by this white boy in Upper Peninsula of Michigan, which is all white, um, mostly, I would say 99% white. Um, And then questioned by roommates in North Carolina when I was a late teenager uh, about who I was and black people shouldn't marry white people and it's not good for the kids. Questioned in Missouri, where do you belong? Why are you here? Who are you here for? What do you hear? My parents stopped by the cops as we were, as I, when I was growing up. My mom would never tell me why. But then, of course, later on, I understood and we had discussions about, well, it's a black man in the car with a white woman. And cops are like, well, what are you doing? Um, and that happened a lot when I was growing up. Um, and it's, I've definitely I, struggled with the idea of being caught between two worlds, but I think I'm very much present with the, the plight of the African American in this country. Um, and so it's it's a tough thing. I mean, I think what's happening right now is so necessary and so needed. And I know there's so many conversations about, well, they shouldn't be doing this and they shouldn't be looting and blah, 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 blah. And it's all this commentary, a lot of white commentary about mm. how things should be and you should be doing this and they shouldn't be looting and they shouldn't be this and they shouldn't be violent. Um, and some of it I agree with, but then some of it I don't. And then I'm like, well, but you said this peaceful stuff that was happening two years ago wasn't appropriate either. So what was the next step going to be? I mean, how many more people needed to die before you found, you feel like this type of protest is appropriate. Um, 
so it's tough it's it's a tough like i it's a tough place to be i mean but at the same time like i said it's i think it's revolutionary i think we're going through a mini revolution or a max revolution what's happening in this country has never happened like this before um and it's not fun and it's not pretty and it's it's frustrating and it's emotional and for some of us it's tearing us apart from each other um whether you're being unfriended on Facebook or people, they just don't want to hear what you have to say. They're not listening. They don't want to listen. Um, they're only interested in their commentary. They're only interested in how people are responding to this and how they should respond to it. Um, and you want to get to a place where people can listen and say, oh, hey, well, what do you think? Well, not that I have all the answers. I don't. And oftentimes, even with me, I feel like I'm not stopped by the police. I've, I've had one ticket and then I was stopped because I was speeding once to go to work like six years ago when I was living in Indiana, I can pass. But what I mean by pass is I pass for not being black, um, not looking identifiably black. So my life has been, as I've been older, has been much easier than say my brother, who's also biracial, but he's adopted and he's very dark skinned. He's been through the system. He's experienced all of that. Or my father, who's like, Patrick has met very, very, very dark skinned. He lives, he's had a completely different experience than I've had in some ways. I'm, I'm, I'm appreciative that I can pass some ways. Some days I don't, I wish I looked more like them. Um, so I'm kind of rambling, but that's sort of how I'm feeling. And my, my emotions are all over, are, are all over the place, uh, depending on, you know, just moment by moment. Yeah, I, so I really appreciate you know hearing your story, and um, I think you did a fantastic job of sort of summarizing it in that little amount of time um, for those who haven't heard it before. Uh, and I, you know, for me right now in this moment, um, what's been so helpful is just uh, is shutting up a lot more, <laughs> trying to, which feels weird to you know we'll we'll spend some time talking in this episode. It's probably the most I've actually talked um, over these last few days about about what's happening because I feel like. Um, one of the things that's been, I guess, a real, what I'm struggling with, really struggling with is how to show up responsibly in this moment, um, as someone who identifies as white. Um, and you know, I'm, I'm feeling really concerned about the, some of the, what I see on social, um, from some of my friends who are, who are white, who are sharing, uh, in a tone that I just, I'm increasingly aware of the some of the righteousness even if it feels very aligned with what i hear in the black lives matter movement um i'm feeling this like just kind of uh revulsion <laughs> to anything that's being shared by a white person right now to be totally honest um because i i more than ever feel like we this is a moment where our country is being um maybe shocked a bit into looking directly at what the black experience in this country has been. Um, and, and it's, it's, it's difficult. It's really difficult to look at. And there's this like temptation to, um, say things and do things that make me feel like I'm, I'm being an ally and being active and, and, and solidarity. Um, but I, I worry about, am I doing that? Cause it's just making me feel a little better and like making me sort of move away from the discomfort of facing the fact that, uh, I'm part of a white privileged system that is killing black people, you know, and coming to terms with that in a real way. Um, 
so yeah, uh, that's, I, I don't know, Patrick, I, I'm curious to hear how you've been processing. We haven't really caught up either over these past few days um, and how you've managed um, because uh, I, yeah, I'm looking forward to this conversation. I hope it can be a conversation that um, has more of that uncomfortable um, conversation where we can get a little deep here and, and talk truth. And I love this idea of, of uh, Jamie being the truth teller, um, as you, as you pointedly put it, Patrick, um, because I'm really, I think I'm craving for some of that real talk where, um, maybe I even need to be sort of set straight on some things. Um, but anyway, Patrick, how are you doing? Well, you know, what's amazing is, uh, as a, as a straight white cisgendered man in New England, uh, born with means at my disposal, you know, um, like I, I apparently have all the answers because a lot of people have been asking for my opinion on things, assuming like I can give one. And, and what's been funny, uh, is that the other people who are asking me my opinion on those things are also privileged white people who just like, you know, are like, so like, so, so what do you think about this? Like, is this safe? Like, should they be doing this? Like, should they not be doing this? Like, is this like, you know, like what, what's, what's, who's really looting? Like, is this all a plant? Is this all like a scheme? Is it like, is it like the, the people who are protesting who are also looting? Like, is this a riot? Is it an uprising? Like, how are we going to get in charge of this nomenclature? What should we call it? And I have been doing so much of just not responding the last couple of weeks. Um, and, and that's felt really good for me because I think I fall into the trap sometimes of assuming that I have a valid opinion. Um, and there are things in this world that I do have valid opinions on. I have valid, if maybe flawed, movie opinions, for example, as people listening to this know. I could talk about movies and have some degree of you know, eloquence about it. And, and, that's, and, I, and I deserve to because I love film. And that's fine. When it comes to like race and when it comes to the experience of not being in my shoes, like I, I, I am really trying to be better about not saying anything and about just listening. And John, you had a really beautiful response. I never actually t got to touch base with you on this, but um, Jamie, there, at, you know, at work, there's been this document going around um, where it was, you know, written by, um, you know, black colleagues that we have um, and talking about, um, you know, this moment, basically. Um, I won't get into more like specifics than that, but it was circulated within a group that um, John and I are a part of, which is a group for male identifying people at work, basically saying like, hey, if you're in solidarity with this, you know, why don't you, you know, like lend your voice to the cause kind of a thing. Um, and, uh, and John very eloquently, and I'll let you say it, basically said that you didn't feel like it was appropriate for you to weigh in on it. Um, is that summing up the way you put it? Yeah, I mean, and again, this is sort of how I've been feeling lately about a lot of things, you know, even thinking about how to show up at some of the, the you know, rallies or, you know, they're, they're not real protests in some of these cities, local cities, suburbs, like it's this moment of um, people genuinely wanting to show up in solidarity, a lot of white people, um, primarily white people who are wanting to show up and, you know, use the terms and like, I, I get it, you know, I think there's a lot of um, good intentions, but I'm just like feeling really uh, uncomfortable about a lot of it because it doesn't feel, I just feel like this is not a moment for people who identify as white, who people who are white who to, sh to sh lead or, or organize. I feel like we should be following and supporting. And I guess, you know, I, I would love to dig into that a little bit, Jamie, and, and talk to, I know this is just one person's perspective and, and it happens to be someone who, you know, as you've described, um, sits with this dual identity. Um, but I guess I just feel like I, I don't know. I don't want to, I don't want to just assume, I want to take an approach with humility here. Um, that isn't about, you know, standing on my own soapbox. Cause it's not a moment for that. 
but while still showing up. Right. Well, that's that, it. And that's, and that's, that's the thing. Right. That's the thing. Right. And and there's a lot of great, you know, articles about being an ally and resources out there and there's great ways to do it. Right. And I hope we get into some of that. But um, but when it comes to like what you said, Patrick, about like taking up space right now and some of these conversations. Yeah, I don't want any of that space. I, I really want I want to get the fuck rid of my privilege and I want to get the fuck rid of the space that I'm occupying in this conversation because I just you know, it, it's, it's, it's irrelevant. It's not the experience of the people who are actually impacted by this. Um, and I, and I, before I want, I want Jamie to, to jump in, but I, I also want to say that there is something that I want to bookmark, which is that there is a space where we have to show up actively and we have to lead and that's in our households. Right. And that's this whole separate layer of difficulty here because we are home with the kids who, you know, for one thing, have not been in school now for forever, but also their academic years are ending anyway. So the, the space for prof trained professionals to deal with this yeah. is closed, basically. So now, in addition to us basically saying, "Show me what to do," "Show me how to how to like support," "Show me what what I what I can be," you know, a helpful member of this movement with. In addition to that, we're also saying I have to couch it in terms that kids can understand because if I want to stop cyclical oppression like this, I have to like nip it at the bud and in the, the places where I can. And the only place where I can is with the children that I'm co-raising, right? So mm -hmm. that's bookmarking for later. But I guess going back for a second to Jamie about sort of like how to show up and how to, what, what our appropriate spaces are, et cetera. Like how, how, do, how do you feel about that? What do you feel like a good level of engagement is? What have you noticed? Well, I think what's most important to know is that um, in terms of the black community, the only way that we're going to see real change is if white people come along and help us because white people have the power. That's just how it goes. So how do you show up? You show up by pointing it out to peers, saying, hey, no, you're wrong with this, and this is why. And it's uncomfortable. That's part of it. Everything we're going through right now, it's very uncomfortable. And I think a lot of the silence that I see or feel and hear or don't hear is because people don't know what to do. They don't know what to say, and they're terrified of offending anybody. And I understand that. And that's, that is laudable. There's a balance there where I think you, people know what's right. I think really, if you've, I think probably Patrick people are coming to you because they know Patrick has a pretty level head. Patrick comes from a place where he knows what the truth is and he's always spoken. So they're not looking for you to make a comment on, unless maybe some are, like, are these black people up to no good? Maybe I don't, that's a different question, but. But that yeah. is the shit white people talk about, Jamie. Like that yes. is, that is the shit that's that, true. and, and you it's know true. this too, like, like the, yeah. this, that is the shit that happens not on main level Facebook, right? Or not on, not on like out Twitter, but like in text messages from, yeah. especially from like older people. They'll be like, yeah. hey, like, do you think, and it's the same, it's the same thing that was happening with COVID early on where there'd be people, you know, we'd be interfacing with who would be like, is this a conspiracy by like the Chinese government, right? It's that mm -hmm. same thing. It's mm -hmm. like, they it's wouldn't say that out in public, but people get afraid and they ha they have these little like late night thoughts in their head and then they have to get validation for it. And, yep. and, and I've been jumping in that space a lot to say that um, I don't want to give my opinion or to, or to share what I think, to mm -hmm. just basically use that as an opportunity to like get this idea out not get the not like a novel concept but to reinforce that this is a moment to listen and this is a moment not to form any judgments and not to presuppose anything but yeah but yeah. exactly well and i think like even for me like just being real like i'm tired of white commentary i see it all over facebook where people the white commentary meaning and i think that there's a balance here because i don't want to surround myself with people who agree with me. Patrick and I disagree on several things. In fact, how we met was we disagreed. And it was this really healthy um, 
entryway into this beautiful friendship that him and I have and meeting his wife and, you know, just getting to know your family. Like, but we, that was based on us having completely polar opposite views. So I think that there's a balance. I don't want to be surrounded by everyone, by people that I, who like, Oh yes, Jamie. Yes. Oh, sure. Thumbs up. But I'm also what I have been seeing and from people that Patrick and I know is commentary on protesters, what's right, what they should be doing, but not understanding that you're dealing with a, a group of Americans who have been brutalized and exterminated since they've been in this country. How do you want them to act? How do you want them to act? It wasn't good enough when they were peaceful and now they're not peaceful. Again, a replay of the 1960s, the late 1960s, when there were race riots and all sorts of things before they signed the civil rights law, all of that stuff, and nothing much changed. So you have this history of slavery for this long, 200 something years or whatever, and then there's freedom on the books, but privately there wasn't freedom. Privately, African-Americans were driven, a lot of them from the South. So it was like, okay, you're, you're not technically slaves, but you're certainly not free and you're certainly not in control. And then years later, the right to vote. Okay, you can vote, but you're not in charge and you're not free and don't come over here and stay in your own neighborhoods. And then civil rights movement. Okay, 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 okay. You can, we're going to, you can come and drink at this water fountain, but we're going to build other water fountains and call them, um, what's the name of those places? They're like, uh, they're attached to uh, golf courts, golf courts where, Oh my God, the name is slipping me, but it's the different name for essentially a whites only like country club, country club. Yeah. Oh, right, um, yeah. So we're going to build, we're going to build different versions of that. Uh, meanwhile, what's going on in African-American communities is redlining and continued segregation in some ways and pushing them out of, of neighborhoods and gentrifying neighborhoods, gentrifying black people out of the neighborhoods that, that they live in so they can't afford it. That is systemic racism. And so all of this is just boiling and it's boiling and it's boiling and it's boiling. And now here we are in absolute catastrophe. What did people expect? And so my frustration and why I'm one of the reasons why I'm trying to not stay on Facebook anymore because I'm addicted to it a little bit. So every notification I'm like, Oh, what, 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 what? And it makes me angry is just seeing the white commentary over and over and people who are more in love with their opinions and more loyal to their opinions than they are to the love of their brother. Um, and I think part of this is because they don't see, they just, for whatever reason, they, they can't, they can't escape the reality of their own experience. And I think that's another thing you and Patrick have a completely different experience of America than I do. At the same time, my experience of America is very different than my father's because I can pass for non-black. Um, and that's what people have to understand. People were like, well, I, I go outside and I don't, I don't, people say that all the time. Like, I don't, I'm fine. This is, everything's fine for me. You know, it's not about you. It's about understanding that people have different experiences in the same country. It's the same thing when you, you hear about a neighbor who was maybe a serial killer and you're like, well, they seemed like really nice people. I, he was always very nice, but you didn't know him. You didn't really know them. And that's why it's a shock. And I think it's, it comes from a place of just understanding that people have a different experience in this world than you do. And starting there and starting saying, well, how was your experience different? Can you talk about that? 
I'm ready to listen as opposed to, okay, well maybe your experience was different, but you still shouldn't be doing this and they still shouldn't be doing that. And I think, and that's really what's what I see all over. Um, and that and, is the Facebook thing. That's the Twitter thing. Yeah. That's exactly what happens, right? Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's some lip service about, well, yeah, I think George Floyd's death was terrible, but they, these cops are dead too, you know, where it's total, this, it's a reappropriation of the conversation. So they're reappropriating African-American struggle as to, well, this is bad over here too, you know, mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. because they, for, from, and it comes from a sense, I don't know, like they're losing their own identity themselves. I don't know where that comes from or, but I, I think the big picture for me here is, is two things. We had Barack Obama as a president for eight years. He's a flawed man. Politicians are not our saviors. They will never be. However, Barack Obama was never our reflection. He was only our aspiration. Mm. Donald Trump is our reflection. And we were never going to get to where we're going to now without looking at that reflection. So, Wow. I just want to sit with that one, man. That's, That's I think really you're good, spot man. on. Um, I, I've also heard this idea that, that, you know, Trump was our, was like the first white president, right? Because every president before that was by default, of course, like it was never even a consideration. And mm -hmm. then you had President Obama, um, the first black president, and then someone who's very intentionally voted in for his whiteness and for everything mm -hmm. that he stood for. Um, and this idea that he's a reflection of us um, that you just put out there, it's really resonating with me. And, and the thing is, I, I, I see the same issue in the, uh, in the commentary that I'm seeing um, from white people who actually aren't, you know, uh, sharing the views that you just described where it's like, you know, cops are also dying or um, are trying to sort of take a more defense uh, approach. Um, I, I'm feeling like there are uh, people who are white who are also, sh you know, sharing commentary right now that are maybe very well aligned with um, the Black Lives Movement, uh, Black Lives Matter movement. And even then, I'm, fe I'm just feeling like, <laughs> let's put our energy instead in sharing those black voices and having that be the focus, right? Because like, I don't know, there's just this fundamental thing about the idea that we would lead and that our voices, white voices, um, need to be heard in this moment that I just, I don't know. And the thing is, like, I, I also want to just address this because we're talking as, you know, <laughs> a couple of white guys, um, two and a half white guys, as we talked about, right, uh, on a podcast. And we have a voice right now. We're taking up space. And, and I, I guess the thing that I think is also important to distinguish in this moment is that there's the stepping on a, stop, a soapbox, okay? There's social media broadcasting your thing out there and, and taking up space in that way. Um, and then there's there's, like, real conversations that need to happen. There's, like, actual conversations with people who have different experiences that are difficult and that we have to have in this country. And I feel like that part, you know, we need to lean into and, and really, and have that kind of dialogue and hear from people who have different experiences because, um, and, and also just sit with it, like not feel like we have to just react right away and do something about it, but actually sit with that discomfort. You know, um, I, I was recently reading um, Brene Brown, and, and, you know, she talks all about vulnerability. She's this researcher who became big on TEDx and, or TED and with her awesome. TED Talks. Yeah, you love her too. I mean, she's just been great um, and, and, and has so much to say about how to sort of have these sort of rumbles, um, these, these conversations that can kind of, you know, help us grow as, as humans. Um, and she talks about how choosing our own comfort over hard conversations um, is the epitome of privilege. 
and it corrodes trust and moves us away from meaningful and lasting change. And I'm just trying to really, you know, hold that in this moment. And those times where I feel like, you know, if I, if I maybe do this thing or lead or, or, or step up in this way, it'll bring me comfort because I feel like I'm doing something and I'm, I'm really trying to, I guess, shy away from that. Um, I don't know. I don't know, Jamie, how does that resonate with you? Like that? Cause any, any thoughts on like, what is a helpful way to show up as a white person right now? Cause I'm sure a lot of people are wondering that. Um, and I, you know, I, I don't know. I, I, is it just, just to listen? Like, should we just kind of keep it at that or should we show up in a bigger way? Well, I think like, I'm a fan of Jason Momoa. I follow him on Instagram. Um, but he's married yeah, to Lisa. You're a fan of Jason yeah. Momoa, Jamie. Yeah, you uh, are. <laughs> but he's married to Lisa Bonet, who's half black um, and Jewish. Um, talk about an experience there. And then so they have two children together who are a quarter black and Jewish and native and white. And Jason Momoa has been only posting essentially black voices or or um, echoes of black voices, people sort of echoing, hey, this is where we are right now. And Jason Momoa said he was he wrote somewhere, he was like, I'm just so angry that I don't know what to say, something like that. Don't quote me on that, something along those lines. Um, and I thought this was, and it's been tough for me because I've been looking for like, who's talking? I want to, I need to see someone talking to me. Maybe they're talking via Instagram. Yes, the celebrity, someone like Oprah, like I went to Oprah's page today to look, to see, what are you saying? Like, how are you meeting us as a leader of the black community? And I haven't seen much from her. And I think a lot of people are just gutted. I think a lot of people mm. don't know what to say, number one. So I think that it's it's very, very, very difficult. And then like, there's people like Jesse Williams, who was, who's on Grey's Anatomy, who's also biracial. He had a fantastic speech for um, on um, the BET Awards three years ago. Amazing speech, you guys should watch. But I've been like, hey, where are you? Like, where, are you out in the streets? Like, where are you right now? Where is this leadership that I saw? And being disappointed in that too. Like, you guys can get up on the stage and make these great speeches, but where are you? And a lot of people have been calling for leaders within this protest, um, and it's not happening. However, on the flip side of that, who is leading these protests? Who are the forefront? White people, young white people who are saying enough is enough. When I see pictures and images of these protests, I see mostly white people out there. Certainly black people, yes. And there's Black Lives Matters um, um, protests that you see mostly black people. But even a uh, protest I passed a few days ago on the streets in a very affluent part of California in the valley, um, Claremont, all on the corners of this huge street, 85% white. And I, I got goosebumps. I was like, these are... This is what we need. And we need white voices saying, this isn't about us anymore. This is about them. And this is about us using our hands to lift up a sign, using our voices to lift up a name, using our the means of our media to lift up a cause and saying that this won't change unless we help it change. So I think it's a thing. I think it's uh, both listening and confronting, confronting people when you, when you um, hear it confronting people like i mean i've i've already had conversations already that got pretty i wouldn't say ugly like we were mean to each other but that got really heated and i ended up unfriending one of the people and we friended each other back and we kind of talked and they apologized and i apologized but still we're in a very difficult place but i think we have to have those conversations you have to be willing to make people angry 
Yeah. You have to be willing to stand up for what you believe is right, regardless of what other people think of you. And I think that is difficult for most people to do. Especially in an age where everyone has a voice and everyone has a platform and everyone has an agenda, whether they realize it or not, because everybody has a perspective and everybody sees that perspective as universal, but it's not. And Jamie, something you said that I really want to remember is, um, is that it's not about you. Because the reality is, is it's actually never about you. And I mean that for everybody listening to this, black, white, anything, it, it's never about you. If you see somebody taking action that feels right to them, it is their decision and you should listen to it and you should respect it, right? And th that's how you can learn. Because it's also, it's I, another problematic thing is we talk about like the black experience, we talk about Black Lives Matter like it's some sort of a monolithic thing, but it's not, right? Like, like Jamie, you were mentioning Jesse, uh, Jesse Waters. Jesse Williams um, from Grey's Anatomy and Oprah. Um, I was thinking about like John Boyega, who you know did this amazing, oh, yeah. amazing. Oh, I mean, yeah. He's he's showing up, right? Yes. But these are all black people with means and privilege, and, and, a, and who already have a pre-existing voice and a pre-existing network, right? And that's mm -hmm. another thing too. Is it's like, uh, and, and that is not at all to devalue what they are saying or doing, but it is to say like the people that I, I feel like I really want to listen to are people who don't have a platform already, like the people who started the Black Lives Matter movement. You know, people who are kind of there at the ground level doing grassroots organizing because I feel like. The black experience in America is not just oh, it's not one thing and it's not an idea, but it is specific. And that's something that I want to say quick, because um, I know we're kind of getting close to the end here. Something that I've been reading about a lot in, um, you know, articles about how to talk to kids about this stuff, because it is, I mean, Micah and I have had a million conversations about this because it's funny, you know, we've already been through COVID with the kids, which is still obviously ongoing, but that was something that was a huge challenge for us to figure out how do we like acclimate our children to a world that feels alien to the world that we have known our entire lives? How do we make them feel comfortable? How do we make them feel like uncomfortable in the right ways so they know what to avoid, et cetera, right? That was already a huge paradigm shift for us to go through. And then in the midst of that now, we have this other one that is making me reevaluate a lot of the things that I've said to the kids in the past and feel fucking stupid about it, even though I was doing it thinking I was being productive. And I've said things on this podcast now that I want to go back and retract, right? So in the past, for example, we talked about, you know, when we were talking about racism, you know, one of Jude's friends is, is Abdul Malik, who's a, a black Muslim kid. Um, and, and I would, uh, you know, he would talk about how he like, you know, looks different, right? And, and he wouldn't be forming a judgment, but he would be pointing it out, which it's true, right? Um, you know, and that would be, we'd kind of come with this metaphor where we'd be like, you know, well, you know, the animals, you know, look different in the animal kingdom, you know, but like, but they can still, you know, coexist. And like, you know, the lions and the tigers are both like hunters or some bullshit like that. But the reality is, is like, no, like Abdul Malik is a black Muslim kid. He's not a fucking tiger in the jungle. Like you, you are not a lion in the jungle, Jude. You are a white privileged fucking child who has a house, who has like, every door will already be kind of cracked open for you, no matter what. I mean, I, I was Are talking- Are the exact words that you used for him? You just sat him yeah. down. You're not a fucking you're lion. Not, yeah. <laughs> you're not a snowflake. But it's so true. And it's like, and, and it's in, so something that Micah and I have been doing more of is being very specific about it, talking about, so in terms of the protest, because we have been an emotional mess about this, as has everybody else, right? And the kids see that, the kids pick up on that. And we're talking about, no, it's about- white people making life worse for black people some of them realize they're doing it and some people don't but at the end of the day the life is experience is different for other people than it is for you your life experience is your life experience but other people's life experiences have been shaped by systemic 
oppression, and racism by people making judgments based on how other people look and the baggage that that carries for them and trying to be very overt about it. So, you know, I have, um, I won't even get to it, but there's, but there's studies that are, are, you know, showing that in terms of child psychology, it's a good idea to start doing that, that mm. it's really easy to be afraid of that. And I have been afraid of that because I'm like, you know, kids are, let the kids be kids. Like they'll get it later. Like just set up sort of, you know, that's why we have fairy tales and that's why we have, you know, history class. We can sort of talk about these things like they're far off, but it's not far off. It's the air we fucking breathe. It is everywhere around us right now. And if we don't capitalize on that by being specific and actionable, and in this case, the actionability of it is just listening, right? So what I want to do a better job of, and I, I'm rambling like crazy too, but I don't care because that's the stuff. That's what you always the do. The point yeah. of this, that's true. That is my default. But in this moment, like I think the next time the kids ask us a question about it, I'm just going to say, let's watch a black person talk about their experience and let's like let's listen to what they have to say. So like, you know, um, playing something by, uh, oh my God, James, I, what the fuck is his name? I just lost it. I'm not your Negro. What? What's yeah. His name? Um, oh my God. Uh, James yeah, Baldwin. James Baldwin. Yeah, one yeah. of my favorite. One of my favorite writers ever, who I think speaks the, incredibly well about the black experience in the United States from the perspective of a black gay man in the middle of the 20th century. Too. Mm. Like, I, I would love to play that for the kids and let them deal with the swear words and let them deal with the footage of people getting sandbagged in the street and be like, you know what? That is actually that's that's real. You know, it doesn't mean you have to go into like explicit detail. It doesn't mean you have to talk about protesters eyes getting gouged out by fucking shields by these riot cops who are armed with armaments that look like they're you know out of the middle of the fucking soviet union it doesn't mean you have to get into that but it does mean you have to call it what it is which is not just this generic term in the past i'll shut up after this you know my family i'm from, i have an italian american descent right and 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 that was for my but i don't i kind of <laughs> i do this a lot but i kind of pass as not having that because i have fairer skin from from my you know other side so like so when i was a kid I would hear all these stories about oppression that my ancestors faced when they came to America. Cause my, you know, my grandmother was a second generation American. Right. And like, they all, you know, had accents. They all used the sort of regional dialect. They all had swarthy skin and like dark features. And they, you know, were, uh, you know, and, you know, I had a great uncle who was shot by the mafia because he w- he couldn't support his business without accepting money from them, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. This was the narrative that was put on me growing up. And it's the narrative that I have been kind of showing the kids to be like, you know, racism isn't just something that happens to other people. Like, like, did you even know that even though we look, you know, like white, you know, mainstream, you know, America, that like only 40 years ago, you know, we had somebody in our family get killed because of the way they look, blah, 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 blah. But it's not that. It's, it's not the same thing. It's not the black experience in America. And, uh, and I'm going to stop being generic about it and start being more overt and also start not supplying an answer and not supplying a quick, you know, this is what is happening right now. And instead, sitting down with the kids and watching something at a relatively age appropriate level that talks about the black experience and talks about what's happening by somebody who actually is experiencing it. I think what's important to understand because uh, oftentimes people will say in defense of themselves, well, I didn't do this. I wasn't a slave owner. This, is, this, is, this wasn't me, you know, this wasn't, you know, this was years ago. So they'll get real defensive. And I think what people have to understand is that they're a part of a system that continues to push that, that narrative or reality, whether it's the judicial system, the incarceration system, all of it that echoes the Jim Crow laws, all of it that is a version of slavery. It's a version. I mean, look at the incarceration rates. Look, you, you see all, all the all over the place where you see a black man convicted for a crime and then a white man convicted for the same crime. He gets 15 years. He got six months parole. 
Um, or there was an African-American woman in Georgia, I think, who enrolled her nephew in this great school and she forged her address so he could get into this great school. She got five years in prison for it. Five years in prison. People have to under, I think if people are willing to listen and just look and see the data and see that how skewed um, the, the criminal justice system is against black people and people of color. And also understand that there's also another silent epidemic happening and that is the treatment of native american people i mean you want to see some african-american people have had it terrible but you want to see something worse go to a reservation go to a place where the american system has just abandoned these people and then when it's convenient get off your land we need it even though it's already had been agreed to that this is your land nope sorry we're this isn't your land anymore we need it for a pipeline get out oh this is your burial oh we got to build a wall it's not your burial ground anymore. Let's exhume those and just destroy it. This is the American way. Um, and people have to understand it. And people have to understand that it's not, we're, I'm not saying it's Patrick's fault or your fault. I'm, or I don't think anyone's saying that. Anyone's saying is, can we just talk about this? Can we talk about this system that was designed by slave owners uh, for their benefit um, when slavery was uh part of the economy that people were bought and sold and bred and dispersed and over and over and over for hundreds of years in this country and the damage that will do the 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 cyclical damage that will do in that community if it's never addressed um somebody brought up the um the reality of was it germany or i think might have been australia where they had a whole commission um towards the indigenous people, maybe it might've been Australia. It's probably Australia. And, yeah, that would um, make sense. And, they, and uh, I think the prime minister got down on his knees and apologized. And there was this whole meeting that took place between indigenous people, not to say things are great with them now or never or, ne- or, all, or perfect and they were perfect ever since that point, but it was a starting point of we need a national reconciliation to come to grips with the pain that we've caused this culture that rightfully owned this land before we got here. Or in the case of the African-Americans or or, uh, this culture that we brought over here, ripped them from their home and enslaved and then threw them away when we realized we couldn't continue um, dehumanizing them the way that we do. Um, Those are conversations we we have to have and what, what those effects have been like. My father grew up with the, the effects of essentially living in a slave community. That's what African-American ghettos are. The remnants of slave communities where white people are like, well, we don't, there's nothing there that we want. So why would we open up a whole foods there? Why would we open up a a Starbucks there? Um, There has been some incremental changes for sure. And incremental um, moves towards, some kind of sense of 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 honoring the African American, but at the same time, it's always been anecdotal. Like, oh, here's February; it's African American History Month. Like, slaves built this country. Yes. Um, and it should be always an art. My my history is interlinked with yours, Patrick, and yours, John. Um, I and I think it's not this separate thing. Um, we are we are we are all in this, and, but in order for us to sort of have that conversation, we have to get uncomfortable during 
this discussion and not feel like we all have the answers and not get defensive, um, which I see so many people getting so defensive. So fast. And I I understand it too. I can get defensive. And I've also, as someone who's biracial, I've had hard times. I mean, I worked with a black workers uh, group when I was fired from my job because I was filing uh, a complaint against my company that it was on racial grounds. And they looked at me and they said, we help people who look like us point blank. And I was like, Whoa, um, I could even tell there that there was some, um, tribalism, you know, that I didn't fit. I didn't look like them. I didn't act like them. Um, so there's, there's been confliction in me as well, where there's a lot of, there's days that I, I read things from certain white people and I'm just like, shut up. You know, there's certain days that I feel I read things from black people. I'm like, well, you don't, you're a poor representation of this race. You know, I, I feel all of those emotions all of the time. And sometimes like if I don't choose black on a, on a, um, uh, like a, whatever, whatever sheets you have to fill out for whatever, many things. Sometimes I feel guilty. Like if I don't choose black, it's, I'm betraying that race. If I choose white, it's me thinking I'm better than I'm black. Um, there's, there's just complexity. There's complexity. And I don't think the society has ever fully been integrated. I think we might live together, but we don't actually live together. And I think that's where the conversation has to start. And again, I, I, I just can't, I can't stress this enough. People have to shut the fuck up and listen. Um, and they don't want to. They would rather, and I think because they, they're offended or they want to get make sure that their voice is heard. But it just comes from a place of love. Like even friends that I completely vehemently disagree with, I love them because my love for them is bigger than my opinion on what they believe. And I think that's where we have to go as a society. Mm. I feel like a a lot of the response that you're seeing um, from white people, you know, either in the sort of defense mode or the like going all in and, and, you know, and joining in, but maybe, maybe overstepping (laughs) is um, insecurity. Like the idea that, um, we we thought we were good people, and that it's not enough to live in, in your. And I'm speaking for myself here too. I feel like it's a it's a revelation to to think through. Um, it's not enough to you know do your good acts in your insulated privileged life and like you know align yourself with certain causes. And you know I like to think that I, I um, step up in different ways as an activist, um, but it's not enough because you're participating in a system, right, where systemic racism is, it has been going on since the birth of this country. Um, and you're, you're taking advantage of that. You're privileged, right? You're feeding into it. And so to just um, do good within your sort of bubble is not enough. And I feel like a lot of people right now are confronting the idea that you can't just, we're not good. Like we're not good people. And I don't say that in a black and white term, right? Like, or or a good, bad term, right? This is all gradient, but like we, this is what showing up is. It's like owning the fact that your, your privileged life is, is really um, part of the problem. It's part of, it's, it's contributing towards the systemic uh, evil in this country. And we have to figure out how to work through that. And, and I so agree with your point about, um, about listening and having those conversations. And I feel like, you know, the other thing that I heard Patrick say too, is that we have to actually be okay with, um, feeling stupid and, and, and making mistakes through all of that too, because, you know, in the way that we talk to our kids and each other, um, it, it, it's so much worse to not have those conversations than, than to talk about it and fuck up, you know, like have some humility. I I've said stupid things, probably even just in this podcast, in this episode, right? Many, um, many. Yeah. 
<laughs> but 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 if you you know if we can't be real with each other and aren't willing to put ourselves out there and have those conversations then we're gonna go back and just like you know shower ourselves in privilege and feel like we stepped up in the moment and then it moves on and you know and then stuff boils over again uh, and and i hope that this can be the revolution that we need but i i mean yeah we've got to really stick with it and, and keep that uncomfortable feeling and conversation going i think and, think, and to always, oh, go ahead, go Jamie, go ahead. No, go ahead, go ahead. Well, just uh, like, so my, I've, I've tried throughout this last couple of weeks to really kind of let my actions be dictated as much as possible by black friends and colleagues that I have. So like, so, so something that I've appreciated a lot about our employer is that we've, we've had a couple of open spaces for conversation on this because like going back to the beginning of this week, which again, already feels like a year ago, uh, you know, I had like four meetings in a row and every single one of them was derailed by the fact that we were all emotionally not at work, we were all thinking about what was going on. And, you know, and every single uh, conversation that I had was with international colleagues and every single thing started with them saying, how are you guys doing right now, you know, in the United States? And and me not knowing what not knowing what to say about it because I don't have the wherewithal to even say how we're doing. I don't even know how we're doing. There's so much going on right now. So what we did kind of in response to that, and I think this was back on Monday already, was our organization was like, okay, everybody just like shut up for an hour and a half. We're going to stop. And then here's an open space. We're going to open a zoom line. Everybody get on it and let's just sort of talk about it. And for one thing, I really appreciated that all of the white people on the zoom call basically just didn't say anything for the first 45 minutes of it. And it was black colleagues that had had the floor and there were silences because it's hard to do that sometimes to step into a space that in the past was sort of just by default, not really your space. You know what I mean? Like a lot of the voices who kind of always step in at the beginning of conversations were specifically not doing that. And there was un uncomfortable silence. And, and that was exactly that uncomfortability that you're both talking about. That was the rumble space where you got to kind of lean into that and be like, okay, I deserve this discomfort right now. You know, I deserve to sit back and allow people space to think and process. And anyway, so in the beginning of the week, I was really conflicted on what to do because of COVID, obviously, and the fact that we are relying somewhat on my parents for help with childcare because, uh, you know, my wife has her boards coming up in just over a, a month. And then, you know, on top of that, you know, I, I'm working a full-time job and I've been losing so many hours and John has been in the same boat worse than, than I am actually because of the fact that Bethany is still going in, you know, every day. But um, it's it's been really a juggling act trying to have a full-time job and also provide childcare, you know, splitting it with a partner who is having to study so much every single day. It's just been very challenging. So we needed help with childcare. And um, before I, um, you know, was going, I was thinking about like, should I go protest? Is it is it going to endanger my parents who are, you know, high risk, blah, 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 blah. So I wasn't planning on going out and protesting. And then on Monday, uh, we had this open forum for employees to talk. And one of my black colleagues, I'll, I'll say both of the things that she said, because I just think they were so powerful. Um, she said, one of the things she said was uh, that when her kids got cell phones back, you know, 10 years ago, they're, they're older, they're like 20, 23 and 21, that it was only, they were, they were only allowed to get it if they promised to keep their find my phone thing on so that she could just sort of keep tabs on them while they were in college. And that for the last two weeks, she's basically been checking that map like every 20 minutes. She gets this feeling, where are my children? Are they okay? Like, are they safe? And she opens that thing up because she has two black kids in the South and she doesn't know if they're safe, right? And that really hit me really, really hard. And I sat here just crying with my video off. I, I this, this idea that like, you know, because she's up here like changing the world for the better. She is a 
powerful person in our organization who is really meaningfully engaged in social change. And she is distracted from that work by having to check her phone to make sure her kids are alive hundreds of miles away, which that was, that really got me. But something else that she said was that it would be so nice if for once black people could like go to work and not be the ones who have to show up to protest. And, and I was like, you know what? That's a really good point because in my life I have protested on behalf of women multiple times. I protested on behalf of the climate. I protested in DC against, um, you know, uh, economic shit. I, I mean, I, I've, I've, I've was raised to go to protests. And so I called my dad after this meeting. I was like, dad, I'm going to go protest today. I want you to come with me because in the past, he's the one who has done that. And my mom was a hippie and blah, 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 blah. I wanted them to kind of get involved. Um, and they were like, um, if you do that, we cannot take the kids in anymore. And it really hit me that this is happening in the midst of a pandemic and that it's more complicated than just my need to show up to feel better about my situation right now. So I didn't go. I didn't go protest. Um, and instead, I donated to a couple of bail relief organizations for people who were there to get arrested because I, I wish that I could have been one of them, but I, it wasn't safe. Um, and then on top of that, I went over to my parents' house that night and we sat out in the backyard and we talked for longer than we've talked about anything in as long as I can remember about this moment and about how uncomfortable it is and about the things that they didn't even realize were forming unconscious biases in my sister and I growing up just because of the virtue of living in a privileged white community with parents who had power and privilege and who raised us to be liberal and progressive and to be open-minded and to have, you know, to be allies, et cetera, but without even realizing it, gave us unconscious biases um, just by virtue of where we grew up and how we grew up. And it was a really productive conversation. And ultimately, although I couldn't bring my face to that rally and I couldn't use my whiteness for whatever it's worth as, you know, kind of a token of allyship at a, at a protest, um, I could at least use that moment to have a real dialogue about this and to, and to really have a really good conversation with my family. And um, it, I don't know if it made me feel better, but that's not really the point. I guess the point is that it was something small that was a drop in this enormous ocean that was a productive conversation where nobody was saying we had the answers and we were just talking about the things we didn't even know we didn't know about. Um, and, and I feel like, you know, Jamie, back at the beginning of this, um, you texted me, you, you were like, you know, I feel hopeful. Like, I feel like this is like we're on the verge of something. And I was like, my, my actual, my initial reaction was like almost anger at you, which was so funny. Like I was almost mad at you for saying that because I was so depressed. I was like, I felt just so ashamed of everything that this administration has done at everything that white people have done at everything I have unknowingly contributed to. I was just so fucking mad. And I felt so uh, upset. And, um, and I have to say, though, now having like, lived through a week or 10 years or however long this week has been of this, I see what you're saying and I agree with it more than I realize. Because what is happening now is people are having to make very intense decisions about whether to go out, whether to stay home, whether to contribute in a way that is genuine and is reactive to what you know the community needs at any given moment, or if it's just for the sake of putting a banner on your profile picture, right? We are at a point now where I think we have so much, we don't have more to lose than we ever had before, but we see more of what we stand to lose if we don't fix this shit. You know, like our society is really closer to collapsing than I think any of us 
have realized. I really feel like the things that we take for granted every day, like a functioning economy, like job security, like a, a healthcare system that is within some degree of reasonable control, even though it's not, like these things that we kind of assume as Americans, we're going to wake up and we're going to have the mail delivered, right? Like even that, all of these things that have just been silently there our entire lives are for the first time all at once in jeopardy to varying degrees. And that is a moment of system shock, right? We've talked a lot on this podcast about, uh, for example, the lobster metaphor, right? About how lobsters have to grow by basically pressing up against their shell to the point where it hurts so much that they have to break through it, right? And that that's this great metaphor for how societies change. Our fucking shell was obliterated back in March. That shell is on the floor of the ocean somewhere and we are growing and we don't know the bounds of that growth yet because we haven't hit it. But we are getting close to something. We're getting close to a moment of real transformative change. And we are experiencing this as it's happening, not as a history lesson and not as something on TV. Like this is every single day. And I can look out my window right now and I can see this beautiful little, um, the new house, which I'm very happy about. Your state, yeah. Yeah, the state. You know, but I, I can see, I can see, you know, trees and I can see birds and I can see, I don't see the city anymore. I don't see any of the stuff that I used to see when I looked out windows. Uh, and, it, and, it, and it can feel like it's not really there. It can feel like, no, this, uh, this is just a dream that I'm having. But it's not a fucking dream that I'm having. And in the past, I think it was really easy to retreat to that, to retreat to this idea that it's somebody else's experience. But it's not. This is my shit. You know, and I need to listen the fuck up because if I don't, I am missing that opportunity to explode past the limits of the shell that I'm wearing that I didn't have any fucking right to wear in the first place. And that is what I'm feeling right now. And that is what I really want to pass on to my kids. Because if I miss this opportunity as a parent to do something good, then I have fucked up big time. So that's what I'm feeling. I think that that's good. Like I, 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 one of the, What's important for me, I think, for people to understand is oftentimes in these conversations, people throw out my, uh, Martin Luther King Jr.'s quotes or, oh, look what um, Rosa Parks did and these peaceful protesters. People have to understand that those were an arm, only an arm amongst many arms of what was happening in the 60s. Um, there were peaceful protests happening but there weren't peaceful protests happening. A lot of them. There was a lot of rioting and violence happening coming from the African-American community of just them saying enough. So I think it's important during these conversations to not let people get away with saying, well, Rosa Parks was all peaceful because unfortunately the white narrative is comfortable with quiet black people. Um, They would rather black people be quiet, but there's a flip side to that. How quiet was Colin Kaepernick doing what he was doing? Not quiet enough, apparently. Not quiet enough. It was, he was, we can could, we could still see you. Why don't you do this somewhere else? Like, that was just like, not like this. Not like this. Quieter, quieter. Over there, over here. Not like this. Um, so I think it's just important for, under, for people to understand, number one, that nothing has ever changed in this country without explosive revolution, without some violence attached to it. Is it unfortunate? Sure. Americans don't seem to react to anything other than violence. Historically. Do we like when real change has really taken place? I mean, the, the women wanted the right to vote in the early, you know, 20th century, and they were doing all sorts of things to get the attention of the men in power, including bombing, including uh, breaking windows and and um, 
tearing apart um, property that they didn't own, that was owned by the men in power. They did this to say, hey, we are here and we deserve the right to vote. Um, and also understand that women were considered property. The whole last name thing is a, an extension of man's property. She took your last name because she belongs to you now. And actually her children are your children, not hers. So if you divorce her, she divorces you, you keep those children. This is this is part of the systemic, I mean, the women's rights movement was in part because of all of those th things that had happened. And people have to understand history. And I don't think people want to talk about history. People don't want to do what's uncomfortable. It's really, it, it's not fun. It's never fun. It isn't fun. Um, but I, I think I am still very, very hopeful, even though this is very stressful. Um, America wasn't going to learn the lesson any other way, any other way. And what's funny, though, is I think about talking, having conversations about this. I have friends that I grew up with in this commune that I grew up with, grew up in, and they're all white, uh, most of them. And a couple of days ago, I was a message them thing because we're all in a group. I said, hey, how's everybody doing? Just to I wanted to know, like, how's everybody feeling about the riots and this? The only responses were, oh, I'm a little bit afraid. And I love these people dearly. They're like some of my best friends. But their responses were like, oh, the COVID-19 rates are really high. And I don't know if they should be opening up things yet. And I'm thinking, whoa, that's your response was just COVID. Not that I was judging them or, or like angry at them, but I was shocked that they didn't. First thing out of their mouth wasn't while this country is going through some fundamental change right now as it relates to the African-American experience. Not a peep, not a sound. And I thought, hmm, this is telling. It's telling. Wow. I mean, you know, one thing that has really stuck with me uh, in response to some of the reactions you're referring to with, with the protests um, was Trevor Noah uh, reflecting on some of this uh, earlier this week. You guys probably saw the video yeah. Um, yeah. he shared. and. It's awesome. uh, yeah, I mean, it was just this like raw, you know, you could see he was just sort of processing it as he was talking. Um, and, you know, he talked about this idea that we're all part of this social contract, right? And when we see looting, some of us are having this like visceral reaction of people, you know, doing something wrong because we have this social contract that says you don't do that. That's not right. And <laughs> the the black experience has, has been a... Uh, this breach, uh, it's not even a breach, it never existed, right? The contract that um, the police are there to protect and serve, right? That that's part of the social contract. And that's just never been the case. And now you have, you know, episode after episode, um, very public with the way that it is shared now, able to be public in ways that wasn't in the past. Um, and it's just in your face, like th there is no contract there. And so for any white person, any person in power to tell another person how to protest right when that contract is so so one-sided is just we don't have a leg to stand on that there is no like we should not be telling anyone how to protest that's the whole point of protest it's like this opposition to power so you know i mean that so trevor noah you know for anyone who hasn't seen it i would really encourage um because i think it will maybe expand your view of of you know what's going on now and some of the violence that you're seeing and you can have all the feelings you want as a white person on that but I mean, I just don't, I don't think it's worth, I don't think it's uh, legitimate. <laughs> I just don't feel like it's worth sharing your opinion about what they are. Um, and I don't think anyone needs to listen to it right now. I think also what's important to understand is the social contract never included black people. The contract of this country only included white people and black people were like, oh, do what you can. 
this doesn't involve you. This has never involved. And, you know, and I'm sure you've seen on Facebook saying the system is broken. And then other people saying the system isn't broken. It's working the way it was designed. And that's true. The police force was created to be that way as a slave, like, let's get this lost slave or this runaway slave. I mean, it was, it was never a peacekeeping force. It was never about peacekeeping. It was more about white ownership and white property and get off white property. And what are you doing here? Um, and maintaining the status quo. Totally. You know, before we wrap, for one thing, there's a freak thunderstorm happening. So we're getting some dramatic uh, end material. Just add that. Episode. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I've been thinking about Harriet Tubman a lot this week. Um, partly just like how extraordinary she was, but also like she lived into the 20th century. Did you know that? She died in the early 1900s. Like she was around for so much change and she was putting her life into such jeopardy with the Underground Railroad and with the liberation and with all of these things. And she was liberating slaves into uh, an existence that she knew would still be oppressive, that she knew would still be so um cut off from power and privilege and that was that was but it was it was a step you know like it was a step towards freedom but like i i feel like it must have been so strange for for her and for like the abolitionists in general to be like the system that they were trying to get out of and that they were trying to get other people out of was a system that was one step on this thing that we are still so far down like, you know what I mean? Like, like we're not, and I don't know why this is coming out so ineloquently, but the, the, what I'm thinking with Harriet Tubman is that, like, she was going through these extraordinary things, breaching every element of whatever social contract they had back then to achieve this impossible thing of liberating people, but liberating them into a, into a world that would then try to continue to indenture them for generations and generations and generations of people to the point where you have somebody on the call now who's only in his 80s, Jamie, whose father was, you know... <laughs> A sharecropper. He looks great for an 88-year-old. But, but your dad, you know, like, I mean, you're a young guy. Like, you're wearing a Star Wars shirt because that's, like, the generation that you are a part of, right? Like, and, and your father was a sharecropper in the, in the middle of the 20th century. And that mind is, blowing. like... A cotton is, picker on a sharecropper's farm. A cotton picker. Yeah. Um, and that is, like, it really just puts into perspective the leaps that it takes for things to change and how hard it really is and and i and i feel like we are living i i hope we're living through a moment that is another step up that ladder but it's not getting us anywhere near the top and that's something that i think we can all see clearly and agree on and i, I just want to just thank you both you're two of my best friends in the world thank you for coming on and having this conversation john i know you were going to come on anyway because you know you co-own this podcast and i'll just i'll but, just talk by myself yeah that's true just alone in the basement um i feel like this is this has been a really um a really good moment. Um, and, and I, and I, I feel like, uh, I don't know, things make less sense than they did before we started talking, but in a way that I think is good because there's kind of not supposed to make sense yet. We're supposed to just sort of live this, um, in terms of like teaching kids about this and things like that, you know, I'm sure we'll circle back around again, but, um, I think it's important to figure out how we're talking about it ourselves too. So this was very helpful in that regard. Jamie, thank you so much, my friend for coming on. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Actually, I've been thinking about like, I, I haven't really, I don't, haven't haven't had really anybody message me except for one person say, "Hey, how are you doing during all this?" Not one. Or one, one person. I've tons of friends, no one has like checked in with me to say, "How's all this going for you? It must be interesting." So, I've been thinking, how do I talk about this? And here we are. So, the, thank you for having me on. It's been a, a good to sort of 
audibly process through this. Good, man. That's what it's all about. That's why we're doing this, right? We're all, at the end of the day, <laughs> bumbling through, trying to figure life out. And I really appreciate this conversation and the fact that we've got a lot more bumbling and, and uh, you know, mistakes <laughs> ahead to work through it. But I think um, the worst thing that could happen is is that we, you know, we just sort of move on and maybe we even have like a, a good election in November and we feel like we're making progress and then we just kind of like move on from it and, and just sort of bathe ourselves in more privilege. Um, I feel like we gotta, we gotta keep this moment and, and come back to this and really, um, it has to continue to be painful, I think, but I, I, I'm, I'm so happy to hear that, you know, you're also feeling that hopefulness, Jamie, and that others are feeling it too. And I think, um, yeah, I hope that we can keep going with this. Thanks, guys. All right. <laughs>